What a marvelous hymn that we have just sung that tells in many ways the story of our day-to-day experience as we wrestle with the despair that uh, so often comes our way, wondering when the peace on earth and goodwill will come that has been promised. But we do not have to fear because we know Ultimately, as we will see tonight, as we conclude the book of Ruth, God keeps his promises. Not one has failed and not one will fail. And we can hang our hat on that. We can take it to the bank. We can use whatever metaphor you wish. God's promises will not fail. So I would ask that you turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, tonight we will be reading verses 18 through 21, and I would ask this evening that if you are able, that you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, we read, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. You may be seated. Let's pray together this evening once more. Lord, we are grateful that we are able to come and sing songs that draw our eyes away from our daily despairs and fix them upon the hope that we have in you, the hope that was secured in the coming of Christ. But Lord, though it was secured when Christ came into the world and took the penalty for our sin, it was assured long before that. Even here, even at the end of this tiny book bearing the name of a barren pagan woman, we see the promise of a king, the hope of redemption, the fulfillment of what you had assured your people from the very beginning that you would do. And so, Lord, as we try to grasp that hope tonight for ourselves, I pray that you would breathe new confidence into our hearts. Help us to to see that you are doing remarkable things even now and you are bringing your plan to perfect completion and therein is our hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you would aid us tonight. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. Help me to speak clearly. Remove any errors from my lips. And may we rejoice together at the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we come to the conclusion of the book of Ruth, it's worthwhile for us to take just a moment to to take a step back and and look at where we've come as as we've gone through this book. Ruth can be a very easy book to overlook in terms of having any real theological significance. After all, it's basically an end note to the book of Judges. It's an appendix 
about an inconsequential foreign woman in an inconsequential city trying to secure the inheritance and name of an inconsequential man. It's a blip on the radar of world history, an appendix that only comes after the real business of heroes and wars and battles has already been covered in the book of Judges. And after all, isn't that the way that, that most of world history is presented to us? We study the, the kings and rulers, the, the great men of ages past. We study the wars and the earth-changing events, but the millions upon millions of common, everyday people that are just trying to survive, trying to make sure that there is food on the table, that their family succeeds, those people are often overlooked as inconsequential. This book may be viewed perhaps as the token love story in the Bible. It's roughly the biblical equivalent of a slightly more sanctified Hallmark movie that you might watch with your wife after watching Braveheart. Uh, that's, that's what we see in the Bible. We have judges and then, okay, well, here's Ruth for all you softies, um, you know, and you can read this and enjoy it and then we'll move on to some more bloodletting. But these overly simplistic evaluations of the book of Ruth fail to understand what the biblical author is doing here, let alone the Lord's sovereign activity in the lives of his people. This is not an afterthought to the book of Judges. This is a contrast, a foil to the book of Judges, showing us what things should look like. It's an indication that in the midst of the rampant abuse and neglect of God's law that took place during the time of Judges, there's at least a tiny remnant of God's people that are trying to follow his law to the letter. And that following of God's law results in redemption. The redemption of Ruth and Naomi, their, their preservation of their lives. And ultimately it's going to result, as we'll see, in the salvation of all mankind. Judges, we saw, was a series of overwhelming examples of God's law being ignored, of God's law being flaunted. But Ruth is one tiny instance of God's law being kept. And when God's law is followed, the result would change the world forever. It would help make good on God's promise to send a serpent-crushing seed through the woman. When we pull back the curtain on the book of Ruth, we can also see the gears of sovereignty turning in the background. The Lord himself is the one who provides for these women. Ruth, we saw, goes to the right field at the right time. She talks to the right man, and the pieces begin to fall into place, but not by accident. A million tiny decisions and circumstances all lead to this end result. The family's decision to leave Bethlehem during the famine. The son's decisions to take Moabite wives. The untimely deaths of the father and the sons. Naomi's choice to return to Bethlehem. Orpah's choice to return back to the land of her family. Ruth's choice to go with Naomi. The words that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz speak to one another. The unwillingness of the nearer kinsman to fulfill his obligation to redeem this woman and this family. All of these things inching us bit by bit toward the fulfillment of God's plan. They cultivated or culminated 
and the birth of a baby that would produce a king. And further down the road, the Messiah. That is what the author of this book would have us see. God's sovereign activity to save his people, to redeem not just one woman, not just one family, not even just one city in Israel, but ultimately all of mankind. Even in this genealogy, listed as the last word in the book, we continue to see God's incredible plan unfolding. More often than not, when we come to a listing of names like the one we just read, we skip over them as quickly as possible, not fully grasping how to pronounce the names, let alone understanding why on earth they're there. But we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we failed to notice some important aspects of this genealogy. After all, the author that has written this beautifully moving testimony to God's sovereignty, God's law, and God's redemption, he chooses to end his book with this, this list of names. This is what he would have us remember. This is the takeaway. This is the, the, the point that he would drive home to us, names. Why do these names matter? What can we learn from a list of names? Well, there's several lessons we can learn that we can apply to our own lives. First, we can learn to practice humility because God blesses the humble. There are several people in this list that had what we might call an inauspicious start to life. They didn't hit the ground running. They weren't born with, as the saying goes, a silver spoon in their mouths or whatever it may be. The very first name on the list is Perez. Now, Perez was the son of a prominent man. He was the son of Judah, the the tribal patriarch, the man after whom this tribe is named. We've already seen Perez's name pop up in verse 12 of chapter 4 in the blessing that the elders pronounced on Boaz. But Perez, if you know about his story, is a really odd choice as a referent for a blessing. You know, it might be like in, if we just take our American history, if you say, may your house be like the house of John Wilkes Booth. Wait, wait a second. No, I, I don't want that actually. Thank you. But nonetheless, that's, that's the blessing that, that the elders placed on Boaz here. Not that Perez had assassinated anybody that we know of, but his origins were not the stuff of legend. Perez was born out of the incestuous, duplicitous, and illicit sexual relationship between Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar after he had failed to provide his youngest son to her to fulfill the obligation of Leverite marriage. There is therefore a significant bond between this scandalous story in Genesis 38, the story of Perez, and the story of Boaz and Ruth. You see, what had gone wrong in Genesis 38 is now going right. Just like what has gone wrong in the book of Judges is now going right in the book of Ruth. Ruth is the redemptive tonic to these sordid tales. Ruth represents the righteous counterpoint to Judah and Tamar. God's provision for offspring, the seed of the woman that would undo the curse. Both of those or that promise had been threatened in both cases, in both Genesis 38 and here in Ruth, by barrenness, by failure to conceive, by death, 
But in both cases, God's sovereign plan is advanced. However, even though Perez, this illegitimate son, humbled in birth, did not start off very well, he becomes ultimately the tribal patriarch, succeeding his father. It was he, rather than Judah's other offspring, that rose to prominence. His family line rose to prominence. His humble origins did not prevent God from using him to establish his people and fulfill his promises. Likewise, when we skip down a few generations, we find another person, both humble in character and humbled by her circumstances. Though her name is not explicitly mentioned in this genealogy, she is mentioned by name in another similar genealogy, and her influence is not to be missed. Notice who in this genealogy is the father of Boaz. Salmon, like the fish, right? Um, But who was his wife? Who was Boaz's mother? Rahab. When we go to Matthew, when we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find in Matthew 1.5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now you surely remember Rahab. Rahab was the pagan Canaanite prostitute who hid Joshua's spies when they came to spy out Jericho. Because of her faith in the Lord, her and her family, or she and her family, were spared the complete destruction that the rest of Jericho suffered. But not only was she spared, she actually ended up marrying who was perhaps the most preeminent bachelor in all of Israel at the time. We'll talk more about him in just a minute, but ultimately she becomes a part of the lineage of our Lord along with Tamar. In fact, in Matthew, you have listed Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, all mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. At least three of these women were foreigners, pagans. At least three were married to other men. Rahab was a prostitute, and Tamar pretended to be one. So we don't have... Perhaps the Proverbs 31 women exemplified here, yet nonetheless, God blesses these women because of their humility, because of their faith in Him, because of their choosing, despite their past, despite their circumstances, to trust in Him. He blesses them. The Lord exalts these women, Rahab included, and He gives them the honor of allowing them to participate in the fulfillment of the promise In Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Because of her humility and her faith, God not only spared Rahab's life, but he blessed her exceedingly. Another example of this that we can glean from this genealogy is, of course, David. Now, we sometimes have a hard time separating David from his role as king and patriarch of the Messianic royal line. But David was anything but kingly to begin with. As a lowly shepherd boy, you might remember that his father didn't even think it was necessary to summon him in out of the fields when Samuel came looking for a king. Oh, Jesse brought his other sons, these men, these fine physical specimens, these smart lads, strong warriors. Yeah, surely it's one of 
one of these, but it wouldn't be David. There's no need to even have David come to the house. That's where David began. There's no way that David would be the man that Samuel was looking for. Likewise, you might remember that David spent time serving Saul, being a court musician to calm Saul's spirit. Later, David was a fugitive from Saul. Though even then, he humbly refused to stretch out his hand and grasp at what God had promised him would be his. There were times he could have taken Saul's life. He says, no, I will not raise a hand against God's man twice. Yes, he said, I won't do it. I won't, I won't take it even though it's been promised, even though it's been assured. He would not grasp at it. And for his humility, the Lord richly rewarded him, establishing his throne forever, using David to not only rule his people, but to usher in the messianic line through which the entire world would be saved. These examples that we see in this genealogy of God exalting the humble are not anomalies in God's word. This is God's standard operating procedure. The idea that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble is pervasive in Scripture. It's articulated a number of times. I'll list a number of references here. You can write them down if you wish. But Psalm 138.6, Proverbs 3.34, Proverbs 29.23, Matthew 23.12, Luke 1.52, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5, all of these passages... I'll repeat them here once more. But all of these passages remind us of this truth that God resists the proud. He is opposed to the proud. The proud are his enemies, but the humble he blesses, he gives grace to. That's Psalm 138.6, Proverbs 3.34, Proverbs 29.23, Matthew 23.12, Luke 1.52, James 4.6, and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. And so not only does God's word assure us in both the Old and the New Testaments that this is how God operates. We're given these examples like Perez, Rahab, and David to prove that this is the case. So what should we do then? How should we respond? Well, first it would be foolish and deadly to walk then in pride. To mark ourselves as enemies of God. To set ourselves up as someone that God should oppose. Why should you be prideful and evoke the wrath of God? We must practice humility. How do we do that? Well, the scripture gives us plenty of ways that we can. We esteem others as more important than ourselves. Setting our own desires aside. We must ask ourselves daily how we may decrease so that others may abound, so that Christ's kingdom may abound through us. We must share Christ with others, regardless of the consequences of our social life. That's humility. It requires humility to say, I don't care what this person thinks of me. I don't care what my co-workers think of me. I don't care what this random person on the street thinks of me. I don't care what my uncle at Christmas time thinks of me. They need to hear the gospel. They must hear the gospel, and I'm the one to do it. There's other more simple things. Changing our child's diaper gladly. Washing the dishes. 
folding the laundry, all without complaining or expecting to be rewarded, giving a higher portion of our income for the sake of God's kingdom, even if it means missing out on some of our creature comforts. All of these actions require us to say, you know what, I'm not that big a deal. And what can I do so that others may benefit? Genuinely listening, younger folk, to those who are older and wiser than us, taking their counsel to heart, sacrificing our preferences and music for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. These things demonstrate humility. It's the simplest thing imaginable. And yet it is the most unnatural thing for us to do because we all like ourselves a great deal. We all like me. And we want to please me. Not me, but you. You want to please you. I want to please me. And so we walk often not in humility because humility requires us to say, how can I forget about me for a minute and think about you? It requires self-denial but it results in God's promised blessing. So the first thing we see in this passage, God blesses the humble, but second, he also exalts the righteous. Now you may not be that familiar with the name Nashon, but his name actually pops up repeatedly throughout the Torah. He was the representative head of the tribe of Judah. In Chronicles, we are told whenever his name is listed that he was a prince of the people of Judah. We're told in Numbers chapter 7 that when sacrifices were first instituted at the altar of the Lord, Nashon was the very first man in all of Israel to bring his sacrifice forward to the altar. Gladly, excitedly, he brings his sacrifice forward to worship the Lord. Based on what we know, this was a righteous and faithful leader of Judah. He served right alongside Moses. He was one of the leaders that Moses selected to serve him and to help him in his administration of the people. The Jews, according to their rabbinic traditions, even elevate Nashon further. They say that he was the first one into the sea when God parted it. And in fact, Nashon walked all the way into the sea up to his head before God parted it, according to the rabbinic tradition. Now, obviously, we don't know whether that's true or not, but that shows us what the Jews think of this man, Nashon and his righteousness, his faith in the Lord. And so it's interesting then that it was this prince's son, Salmon, again, perhaps the most eligible bachelor in all of Israel, there's your Hallmark movie for you once again, who marries Rahab. God exalted Nashon and gave him a position of prominence. And he used him to further the messianic line. However, his exaltation here is not as clear as that of Boaz. When you count the generations of the king here, or as the author says, the generations of Perez, it's an odd place to start, isn't it? Perez. Why would we start there? Why wouldn't we start with Judah? Because Judah's the tribal head. Judah's the one that the tribe is named after. Well, there's a reason. Because if you start with Judah, the numbering's all wrong. Because the author wants Boaz to be listed in the preeminent spot in this genealogy, in the seventh spot. And so he starts with Perez so that Boaz would be listed here in this favored position in the seventh slot in the genealogy. This forms as well a a bookend. Earlier in uh, verse 15, the women of Bethlehem had proclaimed 
to Naomi that Ruth is better to her than seven sons. And so you have at the end of the book both Ruth and, and, and Boaz being associated here with the number seven. Boaz, seventh in line from Perez, being exalted because of his righteous behavior. You'll remember Jesus proclaimed in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The problem for us is that true righteousness always eludes us. That's why Jesus doesn't say, Blessed are the righteous, because there are no righteous, no, not one. We cannot be righteous in and of ourselves since all of our righteousness is filthy rags. Yet praise be to God. The seed of the woman that was passed down through the likes of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and eventually culminating in Mary, produced a royal serpent-crushing heir that would succeed where we have failed. His righteousness would be pure, untainted by any form of sin, selfishness his righteousness would be pleasing to God and it would be freely offered to us he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God so that in that way those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied not by our own righteousness but by Christ's by Christ's those like Boaz and Ruth will be satisfied their salvation being purchased on the same cross as mine and yours. It is true that we see here in the text the Lord exalts them, but their exaltation was paid for with Christ's blood. Which points us to our third point. Patiently wait on the Lord because God keeps His promises. There was a time in this story when this ending seemed unimaginable, where Naomi's faith wavered, when she believed that God would not provide and care for her. But she couldn't see what God was doing. She couldn't see the road that God had paved ahead of her. She couldn't see that the promise extended far beyond herself. And she couldn't see that the promise went all the way back before her into Eden. When Eve was told that there would be a serpent-crushing seed coming to set things right. Imagine, then, Eve's bitterness when the first two opportunities at fulfillment were wiped out in one horrendous action. One seed slaying the other. And suddenly, it doesn't look like God's promises are going to come true. Imagine the dismay and the realization that the serpent's bitter poison coursed through her son's veins just as it did hers. From that time forward, the hope of fulfillment was mixed with the bitter reality of disappointment, of despair. Naomi also knew that bitter disappointment, calling herself bitter. However, Here in Bethlehem, a humble woman and a righteous man realize the fulfillment of God's promises in part in a miraculous birth 
a birth that met their immediate needs and promised the hope of a future kingdom. Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, they had hoped in the Lord, and they ultimately were not disappointed. None who hope in the Lord will be disappointed. Thousands of years after this baby was born, another child was miraculously born to a humble woman and a righteous man in the tiny town of Bethlehem. This birth, too, promised the hope of a future kingdom and a serpent-crushing deliverer that would save his people from their sins. And so our Lord's arrival, the, the coming of our King that we have sung about joyfully now for several weeks, that we're going to be celebrating often in the coming weeks, that reality cannot be unhitched from the lineage that led to his coming. There is a very real history here. Very tangible people that the Lord chose to preserve their stories in his word so that we might know how our king would arrive. So that we might know the story of his coming and so that we might know that God always keeps his promises. And it reminds us that whatever bitter ordeal we may be experiencing, whatever Despair may be before our eyes on a day-to-day basis. Hope is not dead. One day the bells will peal more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The right shall fail, the wrong prevail. Amen. There will be peace on earth and goodwill to men forever and ever. And not one of God's promises will fail. We can trust that. We see here in Ruth, there is nothing inconsequential. The foreign woman that became the great-grandmother of King David and the ancestress of the Messiah, the town in which she and Boaz lived became the birthplace of David and ultimately the birthplace of Christ. The inheritance and the birthright became that of kings. And so what seemed inconsequential thousands of years ago has shaken the cosmos to the core. So it was when Ruth had her baby in Bethlehem, and so it was once more when Mary had her baby in Bethlehem. From the fall, through Ruth and Boaz, to Mary, and even today, our God is writing a story of redemption for his people through a king born in Bethlehem. So come, let us adore him during this Christmas season. Let us adore our King, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we thank you for the assurance of your word. We thank you that you have shown us what you expect from us, that you have shown us that you bless the humble, that you exalt exalt the righteous. But that exaltation only comes through Christ. It can only happen if the King does indeed come. And so, Lord, we thank you that though this book ends with the name of David, that even the great King is not the end of the story. There is one 
far greater than he that would come, one that he himself would call Lord. May we, like this king, have the wisdom to call him Lord, to submit our lives to him in humility and in faith, trusting in his righteousness and in his redeeming work on the cross on behalf of us, poor, wretched sinners. Lord, may this joy, the joy that comes from the knowledge that we are known and loved by you, so much so that you would send your Son. May this joy fill our hearts during this Christmas season, and may we strive to live all the more faithfully in light of it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.